Good morning, Grace. Your reading this morning is John 8, verses 48 through 59. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Thanks, Heather. Two brief preliminary notes. Number one, about Thursday, did the math in my head and cut the sermon in half. So you'll probably be glad to know that. It grew a little. It, it cut in half, grew a little. Grew a little so, I, you know, but all right. Number two is I had, I think I mentioned this before, but I had a professor once and for several classes, and he would begin each of the classes with <clears throat> saying, this is the most important class you'll have in the university. And then he would proceed to explain why for most of the first lecture. And at the first time he said that, I thought, wow, that's pretty bold. Uh, and then as I had him, and he said the same thing for different classes on different subjects going forward, I saw that what he was really trying to do is help us to see why what he was about to teach us mattered in the whole course of life. Uh, and so not... Not to be melodramatic, but this is the most important sermon you're ever going to hear. <clears throat> and I think I can help you to see why in just a little bit. Knowing that there are a number of guests and knowing that while we're going slower through John's gospel, in order that we can focus on some of the, the, more, the, the I don't want to say details, but that we can dive deeper into the different parts of John's gospel and Jesus' words, we're glad to do that, but it also can help us lose track of the whole. And so, again, to, to bring you up to speed, if you're new here, we're working our way through John's Gospel. If you've been here all along, just to s- sort of remind you of where all this fits in the larger scheme of things, uh, we're finishing up John chapter 8 right now. John 7 and 8, all of jo- John chapter 7 and all of John chapter 8, uh, they're set in Jerusalem during the Jewish Feast of Booths. You can go back and read more about what that is in other sermons. If you're interested, or come talk to me after. But all of it is taking place in this very public feast, one of three main feasts for the Jews in Jerusalem, all of seven and eight. Well, this particular feast, this particular Feast of Booze, took place around six months before the Passover feast at which Jesus would be crucified. So he's nearing the end of his life is the main point there. Almost the entire section, chapter 7 and 8, describes different interactions between Jesus and various groups of Jews and Jewish leaders. And the, the 
their interactions, their exchanges follow, I think, a pretty simple pattern, four parts to this pattern. Number one, Jesus would show up in some public place, often in the temple. Number two, some truth claim was put forward. Someone would make a truth claim, either Jesus or one of the Jews. Number three, a debate would take place between Jesus and the Jews about that truth claim. So he would say something or they would say something about God and God's will and God's plan. And and then they would debate back and forth. And then number four, Jesus would explain the consequences of their hardness of heart. You're wrong, and I'm going to tell you what difference your wrongness will make in your life, or already is. More than once, though, interestingly, John records that some, in in chapters 7 and 8, who heard Jesus speak, he says they, they came to believe in Jesus. But also, interestingly and tragically, more often than not, John indicates that their belief was misguided or insincere. It was what we've come to call at grace unbelieving belief. It was a type of belief, but it was unbelieving belief. Well, in this last section of that longer passage, that is at the very end of chapter 8, we find that the pattern holds yet again. Jesus was in public. Several truth claims were offered. Debate ensued. And then Jesus would pronounce judgment upon his unbelieving audience, even as they thought they were going to be pronouncing judgment upon him in the form of stones. Well, within that pattern, there is one main claim, and that's mainly what this sermon is about. One main claim, three subsequent claims that flowed out of that, and then one response from the Jews to it. The main claim is this, and if you hear one thing this morning, this is what I want you to hear. Jesus is God. The one claim, the main claim, and I call it the one that rules them all, uh, is that Jesus is God. The three subsequent claims that Jesus makes that flows out of that is that there is no immorality in Jesus. There is no sin in Jesus. Number two, the Father and the Son eternally conspire for the glory of one another. And number three, eternal life comes from keeping Jesus' word. And what again, what I'm saying is that all three of those claims flow out of, are able to be made because of the main claim, namely that Jesus is God. And the universal response of the Jews was complete rejection, anger. In essence, they accused him of blasphemy. So this morning, again, we're just going to look at the, the one. Next next week, we're going to come back to the rest. But we're going to look at that one main claim, that Jesus is God. Some of what we cover today will be familiar, perhaps, and some will be newer. But Grace, here's what I want you to hear. New or old, combined, it helps us to see the glory of Jesus in its highest and clearest form since John's the first words of John's gospel, the very beginning, the introduction. Jesus is God, the eternal, perfect second person of the Holy Trinity. And so our takeaways then, two takeaways, and here they are. I'll I'll end with this as well. First is awe and wonder and marvel and worship. (laughs) Don't miss this. Whatever else the result is, if it doesn't begin with that, you got to recalibrate. And then secondly, the second main takeaway for us, which again, I, I hope to help you see, is that that has implications for every aspect of your life and every corner of the universe. 
And so let's pray that God would grant us all eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to love these things. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this people who gets to hear it, including me. We, we need this. While the idea of Jesus being God might not be new to us, we know and we confess that the reality of it is there are parts of our being, in fact, probably many, if not most, that it has still not transformed the way it ought. And so I pray that this morning you would increase our confidence or perhaps give it for the first time to some that Jesus is God. Draw us from that into worship. Cause us to see your glory in the highest and praise you with all that we have in the knowledge that you are God alone. And with that, God, help us to re-examine, to re-look at, to reconsider, to recalibrate every aspect of our lives that they might be conform to that great truth, the one that rules them all. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're paying attention when Heather read just a minute ago, you'll quickly notice, or you've noticed already, that I'm beginning at the end. In other words, the claim that Jesus makes that this whole sermon is built on doesn't happen until the very end. In fact, as I mentioned before I prayed, we're not even going to get to the beginning until next week. So the main reason I've chosen to go out of order, though, is what I've already said, and that is that the rest of this section of Scripture hinges on this second-to-last verse. That is, the first ten verses are rooted entirely in verse 58. So let's back up a little bit. As I work through Jesus' main claim that he is God, I'd like to invite you to consider something that I'll come back to. Said it, I'll say it now, and I'll say it again. Everything, everything, everything. It's sort of like holy, holy, holy. I mean to say everything, 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 everything hinges on whether or not that's true. Okay, kids, I don't know what the youngest kid in this room is, but whatever you are, and I don't know, who's the oldest? Raise your hand. I'm kidding. Don't do that. Whoever the oldest is, youngest to oldest, whether you've been in the church for two minutes or or your your whole life, I want you to ask yourself that question right now. Is Jesus telling the truth? or not, in claiming to be God. Everything hinges on that. Every other claim Jesus makes in this passage hinges on it. Every other claim in the gospel hinges on it. Every every principle or idea within the good news that Jesus died to save the world is rooted in this. More significantly still, Everything in every corner of creation hinges on this. If Jesus is God, ask yourself, do you believe that he is? If Jesus is God, there is no aspect of reality untouched by that truth. There is nothing in existence that isn't touched by that. And in the same way, this is what I needed to learn. It's the mid-90s. I really needed to learn this. And by God's grace, I did. If he is not God... That has implications for every part of our existence as well. In other words, the claim we're about to encounter presents every one of us with the most important, all-encompassing question we'll ever encounter. In claiming to be God, was Jesus telling the truth or not? Because that's the most important question, this is the most important sermon you'll ever hear. With that, to best help us appreciate the meaning and magnitude of this claim in a sermon cut in half... 
Let's begin at the beginning of John's gospel and then go back even further to the beginning of God's covenant promise that this exchange between Jesus and the Jews is rooted in. John 1.19, from John 1.19, so if you went all the way to the beginning of John's gospel, from 1.19 all the way to the end of John's gospel contains various narrative accounts of Jesus' life and ministry. It begins with John the Baptist, who was sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus, and then ends with the resurrected Jesus interacting with his followers right before he ascended back into heaven. So 119 all the way to the end. Well, the first 18 verses of John's gospel are different, quite a bit different. They serve as John's introduction. In it, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, John framed up, that is, he explained and he interpreted for us. He, he sort of gave us the whole story right up front. He explained and interpreted, framed up for us much of what he would cover in the, the passages that followed. In particular, he used his introduction to explain who Jesus really was and what difference that makes. So it's the interpretive clue for the rest of the gospel for us. To those ends, in his intro, John got straight to it. He cut right to the chase on the most important aspect of Jesus' nature. In the very first verses of the very first chapter, John stated in no uncertain terms exactly what Jesus claimed for himself in John 8:58. And so we finally come eight, almost nine chapters into it, all the way back to the beginning, that Jesus is eternal God in the flesh. Look at or you don't need to go there. But John 1.1 1, 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And to make sure that no one misunderstood that he was in fact referring to Jesus, the Word, in verse 14, he was even more explicit. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and tr- truth. Well, what was ex- what was immediately clear and explicit in John's introduction has been anything but that ever since to this point in John's gospel. There are definite hints and definite suggestions. Knowing what we know now, it's not hard to read back into those chapters and see the divinity of Jesus in 119 through 848. And yet an important aspect of Jesus' ministry. Again, if you've been with us through John's gospel, you've seen this week after week. But an important an important aspect of Jesus' ministry was his gradual revelation to the world of who he was. In other words, he didn't come right out and say it from the beginning. Over the course of several years, he gradually revealed his nature to the world. The gradual revelation built and built, reaching a new and significant climax in our passage for this morning. In other words, what was clear to John by the time he wrote the introduction to his gospel and what's clear to you and I today who have the whole gospel was not as clear to those who were experiencing Jesus' ministry in real time until now, (laughs) this point. All right, let's back up a little further. If you're not already familiar with our passage in John or with the Old Testament, you might be wondering what I'm talking about. Look at John 8, 58. Is it, it's on, put it, would you put it on the screen? Okay, if you have your Bible or if you saw it on the screen or you just listened carefully, you might be wondering, what is this guy even talking about? 
Nowhere in 848 through 59 and not in 858 did Jesus say explicitly, I am God. Why then am I claiming that he did so clearly and explicitly when those words aren't even in there? Well, understanding the answer to that question requires that we back up a little bit more still. In the Old Testament, we're going to work briefly in like three paragraphs from Abraham to one of his offspring several gen- generations later. Come with me on this. It's a good story. Back in Genesis 15, we read, we read, if, and you can do this later today if you want, but we read of the covenant promise that God made with Abraham. The one held so tightly by the Jews in Jesus' day. And in fact, if you go back and read chapters 7 and 8, you'll notice that several times the Jews who are interacting with Jesus and debating with Jesus say to him, we are Abraham's offspring, as if that settles the debate. And so more more than once, several times, even in just these two chapters, you you hear the, the Jews claiming, we are offspring of Abraham. So what's up with that? I'm about to tell you. So again, back in 15, we read God's covenant promise, the one that answers that question. In it, God promised to be this man named Abraham. He came to this guy named Abram at the time. God changed his name eventually to Abraham. And he promised to be Abraham's God and to give him a land to possess. In Genesis 17 then, just two chapters later, God expanded on this covenant promise. There, in addition to the land, God also promised to make Abraham into, and I'm going to quote it here, a father of a multitude of nations. God even went so far as to declare, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Again, that's why the Jews kept insisting to Jesus that he's wrong and they're right because they are children of Abraham, the, the, the very people that we read about in their minds in Genesis 15 and 17. Well, by, by God's design, let's move forward with this. By God's design, the covenant promise was carried on through Abraham's son, Isaac, and then through Isaac's son, Jacob. Well, God, as he was known to do, including with Abraham, changed Jacob's name to Israel. You ever wonder why Israel is called Israel? That's why. God changed Jacob's name to Israel and blessed him with 12 sons. You ever wonder where the tribes of Israel came from? That's where. As you may know, God especially blessed one of those sons at that time, Joseph, to the point that he got a neat coat from his dad and became the second most powerful person in all of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And because of that, eventually, Joseph's father, Jacob, Israel, and the rest of his brothers eventually joined him in Egypt and experienced remarkable blessing. That's Genesis. Now we're going to Exodus. We're flying. That brings us to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And at the very beginning of Exodus, we're told that eventually Joseph, his father, and his brothers all died in Egypt. But it also tells us, again, this is Genesis 1, or Exodus 1-7, that all the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And the key for us is to see that within a few short generations, God's covenant promises were already coming to bear remarkable visible fruit. Well, all that then is where things take quite a turn. About to land the plane here. 
The next few verses in Exodus tell us, though, that there arose a new king, a pharaoh that had recognized God's blessing on Joseph and and then blessed Joseph and his family because of it. That king died. And it says there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. It says that he was immediate, he was intimidated by Israel's numbers, afraid that if they realized it, they'd take over. He was intimidated by Israel's numbers, by their blessing and might, and that he commanded his people, therefore, to deal shrewdly with them. The result was an ever-increasing enslavement and oppression of Abraham's burgeoning offspring. What looked to be the fulfillment of the covenant happening right before their eyes all of a sudden seemed to come to a screeching halt. In a flash, they went from prosperous and joyful, hopeful that the covenant would be fulfilled right then, to beaten down into severe subjugation. After some time of being enslaved, God raised up another of Abraham's offspring, and his name was Moses. He raised up Moses to free his people, to free his people in keeping with his covenant promise. After miraculously preserving Moses' life as a baby, miraculously allowing Moses to grow up in the house of the king and the son of the daughter of the king, when Moses was older, God miraculously appeared to him in a bush, in the form of a burning bush. In so doing, God revealed to Moses for the first time his most holy name. After explaining to Moses what he intended to do, free his people, and Moses' role in it to use his influence with Pharaoh to help lead the people out of Egypt, God had this brief exchange with Moses. This is Exodus three thirteen and 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, so God promised Moses what he was going to do, and Moses says to God, if I go to this people and tell them what you just told me, if I come to this, the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, well, what is his name? What shall I tell them? Well, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The I am is a translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. Never before had God revealed his name to any man, not even to Abraham. It came to be so revered over the centuries by the Jews that they wouldn't even write out all of its letters. If you spent any time in the Old Testament at all, you know that God has many names. But Yahweh is his most holy name. Let's come forward again into John. More than a fun history lesson, it is that. And more than a bit of trivia knowledge, you might win a game of Bible trivia with this or something. All of that is necessary, though, for us to truly make sense of and appreciate Jesus' shocking words in John eight fifty eight. After a bit more round and round with the Jews concerning the nature of their relationship with Abraham, which is what 848 to 55 is. Then in verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Even with the background I just shared with you, that probably doesn't shock you the way that it should. But to Jesus' hearers, however, to those steeped in generations of reverence for this name of God, it hit like a ton of bricks, which is evidenced by the fact, as the final verse tells us, that they took up stones to stone him for saying what he just said. If you have your Bibles, 
take a look at this. If not, write this down and look it up later. But in verse 24, chapter 8, verses 24 and 28, Jesus started to introduce this idea. It's more subtle than he hinted at this. Likely in those two passages, he was referring not to the Exodus 3 passage, but Isaiah 43, 13. He says, I am he, is how God revealed himself in Isaiah 43, 13. But here, though, Jesus took what was implicit and made it explicit and added to Isaiah 43, Exodus 3, I am. That is, in John 8, 58, Jesus took for himself God's most holy name. Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be the same, the same God who appeared to Moses in a burning bush 1,300 years earlier, the God of the covenant promise that shaped their entire lives, the God of whom the Jews said in verse 54, he is our God. So what are we to make of this? It is truly the most staggering claim of all time. Most of us, as I said earlier, have become so accustomed to hearing that Jesus is God that we miss how staggering it is. To even begin to get our heads around this, I want you to just picture this with me. Keep this in your head and imagine this. Some guy comes to Minnesota. Some guy. You've never heard of him before, really. He's got a little bit of a weird story of his past, his birth, and there's some stuff going around about that. He starts teaching things about Christianity. We're Christians. We we love God with all of our hearts. Our hope is in Jesus. But he starts teaching things about Christianity that don't sound quite right to us, or at least It's not even immediately obvious what he's talking about when he talks. Some aspects of his life seem to line up with some things we've read in the Bible, and there's some rumors swirling around concerning his ability to do things no one else has ever done. At the same time, though, little of what he says fits into our understanding of what Christianity is. After a couple of years of this taking place all around us, We find ourselves hearing him speak in person. Maybe he shows up at the farmer's market, starts talking loud enough for everybody to hear. For the most part, he starts off with the same kinds of things that he's been rumored to say before, but then he takes it to another level. In the past, he's claimed certain prophecies for himself. He's reinterpreted biblical passages in ways that you and I have never heard of and repeatedly challenged just about every aspect of authority of those in power within the church. But then he has the audacity to take his audacity to an entirely new level. He clearly and emphatically claims himself outside at our farmer's market to be God, not merely from God or a godly man or on the mission, a mission from God, but to actually be God. This man who looks just like all of us, just like any other man, who's less educated and has less money than most of us, who has almost nothing notable about him other than his provocative teaching and unusual boldness and possibly some exceptional acts, publicly declares himself to be the God who made the heavens and the earth. What do you do with that? How do you handle that? How do you respond to that? Well, as others have pointed out, the claim is so shocking. My goal is to help you get some of your shock back. The claim is so shocking that it immediately removes all but three possibilities. There's only three things left. All the other possibilities that might have been there before are gone. No longer can he be considered as a mere revolutionary or a troubled, or a troublemaker or a teacher, good or bad, or, or even just a man of God. No longer are those options for us. 
none of those kinds of people actually claim to be God. That claim means that he is either a liar of the most heinous kind, knowing full well that he is not who he claims to be, but trying to dupe us all into giving our lives to it anyway. He's either a liar or he's a lunatic, meaning of the most pitiable kind. He genuinely believes himself to be God, but he's not wrong, or he is who he says he is. That's it. Those are the only three possibilities left when somebody claims to be God. That's, in essence, exactly what the Jews in John 8, 48 to 59 were faced with, and their response proves it. The way they responded proves that they understood what I just told you. They immediately recognized the magnitude of Jesus' claim. They were rightly shocked by it and decided quickly that he wasn't a lunatic. He, you could tell he, he had his wits about him. And certainly, rather than being God, Jesus was a liar. Therefore, according to verse 59, they picked up stones to stone him. Grace, the God-prescribed penalty for blasphemy, which this certainly is, if it's not true, was throwing stones at a person until they died. The community would all grab stones and throw them at the blasphemer until they were dead. Therefore, rightly certain that Jesus had just claimed to be God and wrongly certain that he wasn't, Jesus' hearers were again wrongly certain that they needed to execute Jesus according to God's decree. So here's my conclusion. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? Before anything else, we must decide for ourselves if Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or God. If he was a liar or a lunatic, the Jews were right, and we should join them. If he is God, though, and he is, that changes everything, everything, everything. Grace Church, please hear me when I tell you that all of this means that there is no corner of the universe, no thought in your head, no feeling you've ever had, no relationship you've ever been a part of or ever will, no purchase you'll ever make, no moment in time you'll ever experience, no orientation in your life with friend or family or neighbor, nor anything else over which Jesus is not God. Because of that, Jesus could make the claims that he made in John's Gospel and call people to the things he called them to. At the same time, it was because they rejected this larger claim that the Jews couldn't possibly believe Jesus on any of the smaller smaller ones that were all rooted in it. And in that, we get a small glimpse of the difference between a life lived in genuine faith in Jesus and every other life. In conclusion, then, my challenge to you all right now is to ask the Holy Spirit, to help you decide once and for all whether or not to hang everything on this central claim that Jesus is God. As we've seen, the only real options are to reject it outright and everything that goes with it, or to accept it fully and obey all that Jesus commands in worship. What is not an option is the version so prevalent among us. What is not an option is that which so many in our culture have chosen, to dabble in some watered-down, domesticated, counterfeit version of Christianity that has large chunks of reality untouched by Jesus. That's not one of your options. May God's grace wash over us this morning, opening our eyes to behold the wonderful, eternal, life-changing truth that Jesus is God.